Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's another episode of Business of Film, episode number 38. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. All right. So today on the show, we've got Heather Hale with us, and I was really excited to get her on uh, for this episode because uh, we had the opportunity to talk about a subject that we haven't gone into, at least in great detail as yet, on the show. And that's the film markets, uh, how to work them, how to network within them, how to get the most out of them, uh, working with sales agents, uh, really gave us an opportunity to explore that topic in greater depth. And Heather is very, very knowledgeable about that. So enjoy this episode. You can find it uh, in the show notes at crafttruck.com slash 38. And uh, here we go. Thanks, Heather, for joining. And thank you again for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking sure. the time today, Heather. Maybe you can just take a, a, you know, a brief moment and just tell our audience a little bit about who you are and, and, uh, and what you do. Well, I'm an independent film and television a director, producer, writer, and I have about 50 hours of produced credits that include a lifetime original movie called The Courage to Love that Vanessa Williams, Diane Carroll, Stacey Keach, and Gil Bellows was in. I have a film hitting Walmart and Best Buy on August 19th, which is called Absolute Killers that Meatloaf, Ed Asner, Eddie Furlong was in. Um, some of the other projects I've worked on, two edutainment series for PBS, both won Emmys. Um, I've done some reality television, docudrama, lifestyle, talk show that have won tellies. Um, some of the workers won Ace Awards. So I've done all different kinds of things. I am... Approved with NBC Universal for a special development fund, which means I meet every year with the heads of their all their outlets. They have about 15 outlets, which include USA, Sci-Fi, of course, NBC Comedy and Drama, and uh, find out what their mandates are every year for what they're looking for in the, on their television outlets. So, and then I'm I'm working on a book on how to work the markets, which is the film and television markets like Cannes, AFM, Toronto, Nappy, Real Screen. So I just kind of have my finger in a lot of different pies of the business and um, just working to, you know, raise money and make projects. Uh, there's, that sounds awesome. In fact, there, there are so many interesting things there that we can talk about. I, I feel like we should unpack, you know, those one at a time and just dive into some of those those um, those buckets uh, and see what we can explore. Certainly, the thing that caught my attention right off the bat was, uh, and probably to no surprise, is uh, the book that you're working on uh, and working the markets. Uh, to me, that's that's a topic we haven't explored a lot on this show, and I'm really interested to to hear your take on it from the perspective of uh, the book that you're writing. First of all, when does the book come out? Just just out of curiosity. Um, the book comes out in June of next year, so right before the next market season or cycle, and it'll be part of um, Focal Press's series called the AFM Presents, but we're going to cover much more than just the AFM. We're covering all the markets around the world. So just from, a, I guess, a, a global perspective, what is your take on um, on the, the business from the perspective of attending markets and what's necessary to attend, what's not necessary to attend? How do you think about, you know, whether or not a filmmaker should uh, even go to some of these markets in the first place? Well, I think any filmmaker would benefit tremendously from attending any market. They don't necessarily have to go every year, but just going one time, even if you don't have a film to uh, promote, 
what you will learn is kind of head exploding. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I go to the Emmys every year and just being on the red carpet and being there and seeing the machine that is these PR pieces, similar to the markets and the festivals. And a lot of filmmakers have been to festivals, but they're a far cry from what uh, market is. A lot of them are, are concurrent. Like the Cannes has a film festival and market, Toronto. So a lot of them are, are both. But for example, the AFN is strictly a market. There's no film festival associated with it. So for an independent filmmaker who is breaking in or just um, freshman, sophomore, kind of learning the business, just being there in that environment will expose you to so much of what's really happening in the business, at least within the the mainstream commercial show business. So there's a lot of people that are, are learning all sorts of alternative forms of distribution and different ways of coming in through the, through the Internet as different platforms. But mainstream, getting your film to theatrical distribu- distributors throughout the world, um, the marketplace is, is where that business is done. And so for an independent filmmaker to, say, perhaps buy a badge that gets you into the conferences, so you're learning and going to the lectures and panel discussions, that can be really illuminating and cutting edge and current from people working in the trenches right now and then just walking the floors. They, you know, for example, the AFM, they take the Lowe's hotel and they pull all the beds out of all the rooms and each room becomes a suite. And those suites have posters galore and one sheets and all different kinds of sales agents and people working, um, you know, showing trailers, clips, master scenes and sequences, and schlepping their wares. And so for a filmmaker to be able to walk the floor and see, oh, wow, these are the B-level stars that are getting um, distribution. These are the way they're selling thriller or horror now. You know, just looking at tons and tons and tons of posters to get a feel for what are the elements yours should have. Um, looking at titles, looking at taglines, and maybe taking an idea of who your cast wish list is and seeing which ones the distributors have faith in or even showing your wish list to a distributor. A lot of times, not in the beginning of the market because they come from all around the world and spend a lot of money to be there and they have meetings galore booked. But as you get towards the end of the market where maybe they've done a lot of their sales, they've had a lot of things they came for completed, they have a little more downtime. If you walked in and they're just sitting there waiting for their next appointment, they may be willing to take a look at your cast wish list and say, nope, nope, nope. You know, and, and I'm always amazed at people we think in the United States are famous because they have hit TV shows. And everybody you know knows who they are, but no one abroad knows who they are. And there may be a, a movie star or a B-level movie star that is much more valuable than a TV star that may, might be more famous here. So it, it does shift your thinking of, of who's going to be elevated on those lists that are going to be marquee value to your potential buyers. Now, uh, I, it's funny that, that, that you mentioned uh, the whole notion of, of taking it in. I remember the first time I ever went to the AFM, and this goes back, I don't know, 10, 12, uh, 13 years, something like that. And I remember running around the AFM, and it was like just being like a chicken with my head cut off. I took... Mm-hmm. All these meetings with all these people, and it, was just, it really was the, the, this mind-blowing experience yep. just to sort of just take it all in. Uh, and having been there, you know, year after year and, and kind of seeing that that um, transition or the business evolve, I, I'm interested to get your take uh, from the perspective of just 
how important is it to be working with a sales agent and what point do you think that conversation should start? And let me frame this for you just from, the, from, uh, from this particular point of view, which is there are so many people that you could be working with. You, when you, when you go, in, go into the AFM, obviously there's, I don't know, hundreds of sales companies. So if you were to give some advice in terms of what somebody's approach should be in terms of you know, who they should be speaking with, how they should make their approach to a, a specific sales agent, pick a specific sales agent, and whether or not they should even be talking to a specific sales agent or a sales agent, um, you know, at at and, and we'll kind of put a timeline on it. Uh, and, and I'm going to kind of throw that over to you. When should one be speaking to a sales agent? I mean, there's there, there's a whole lot that becomes this kind of mystery in, uh, that we could unravel in terms of the the how to work with sales agents. If I were to kind of frame it in one question for you. Well, just like your social media campaign for your crowdfunding campaigns, you can never start too early. So any kind of sales and marketing, the sooner you start, I mean, it's the same thing in creatively developing a film. You know, I want my composer on board as soon as possible, my production designer, even if we're in soft prep. So I don't think you can start too soon with an international sales agent. And if you can get someone on board, I'm working with an international sales agent right now on a project we haven't raised the money for the film yet. And they're going to try to help us get pre-sales so that we can use that to help raise the money for the film and do get financing. So getting them engaged and enrolled and on your team as someone who's committed to help you sell that, help you set it up, you can never start too soon. In terms of who to work with, um, I don't think it's a great mystery. I think it's something that people are intimidated and overwhelmed by. But if you take a deep breath, take a step back and think about it, it's really common sense. I, I think I told you earlier, I, I teach a series of classes called Power Networking. And, you know, people always think they know everything there is to know about networking, and yet they don't apply 90% of what they know. And every step of our business, whether you're breaking in as an actor, whether you're trying to get a project extra money for post-production if you ran out of money, all these steps, um, all these um, parts of the business or challenges or obstacles that we all have to overcome as hurdles all can be broken down. And if you just take a moment to look at it. So if you're deciding which international sales agents to solicit or try to get in business with or try to at least broach to begin a relationship to perhaps network two years ahead of yourself, you want to make a list of your film comps. You ought to have that already. You should have that probably from the get-go. So let's say you're doing an, an independent thriller. And let's say it's a SAG modified low 625. So you're going to make a list of films, ideally in the last five years. Of course, there might be some real iconic ones that it's really close to from 10, 15, 20 years ago. But in terms of film comps, you want them ideally within the last five years, maybe 10, but try for five and around your budget range. Maybe you can't find a lot at 625, so you need a couple at 1.53 and maybe a couple at 200K. So to see what that actual water level is, and I do a spreadsheet, I do an Excel spreadsheet, and I put you know, what their budget was, what their box office was, domestic and international, and I put who was their distributor, who was their international sales agent. And what you may find, if you're lucky, is you'll start to see a pattern or a trend developing. It's like you're watching, you know, a stock chart. And you begin to see, wow, I have a list of 30 films and 19 of them were repped by the same international sales agent. Well, obviously, you found the sweet spot for that list of those 4,000 possible people you could pick between. Here's the four. 
And so now the way to approach them, you know, I, you know, in, in journalism, it's always the five, you know, who, what, where, when, why. And you start with that as your lead off sentence and you kind of fulcrum into your, your article. So with your cold call or your lukewarm email pitch or however it is you're accessing this person, even at a, at a, a networking function, why you, why them, why now? So if you can tell that international sales distributor or sales agent, um, you know, I noticed that 15 of the 30 films I have as comps for my project, you were the rep on. Okay, boom, I know that you, that I, that your project is in my wheelhouse. So you've already spit out a red carpet for me that is welcoming because at least you've done your research, you've done your due diligence, you know who I am, you know your project well enough to have done some research and we might be a decent fit. So already I know why me, right? So if I'm the person presenting, it's why you, why me, why that, why now? So as I'm pitching my project, I might say, you know, we have whoever the three stars are that you've had in four or five of your other projects. It's a thriller with, I don't know, supernatural elements, just like your these four films. It's in this budget range of these six films that you worked on. And um, we're at, and then I would come up with a sense of urgency, whether it's arbitrary or real or not. I'm just about to sign with an international sales agent. I've just got an attachment. We've just raised our film. We're ready to start principal photography. We're in the can and we're looking, wherever you are in the process, it's suddenly urgent for them to look at it now. And, um, and so I think, I think that it's, it's not that hard. I think you just need to create a, a really realistic hit list and rank and prioritize them is to, you know, and the other thing to think about too, is if you're going to the AFM or any other marketplace, wherever you are in the world, Who's local? Because you want to try to make appointments and meetings with the people who are coming from out of state or out of country. And the other people you might swing by and say, I'd love to meet with you maybe in a couple weeks because they're busy meeting people who have traveled all around the world. So try to secure and save the people that are local that are down the street that you can meet with at a later time, but get with those people who've traveled to be there. That's some really great advice. Uh, just everything you, you said there, uh, it just really, really, really tangible, practical advice. And uh, that, that's awesome. You know, I, I totally get that. And in fact, I'm going to use some of those tips myself. Uh, yes. the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, from the markets that are out there, and you've already mentioned a couple of them, uh, which ones would you suggest are the priority markets to attend, maybe the top three markets that you'd suggest somebody attends. And out of curiosity, do you identify any specific differences between the markets, between the, the let's say, your, your top three? Well, actually, that's it's interesting because I'm doing probably an interview a day right now for my book. So I hope to have that exact answer in terms of the delineation between the different markets. But I would say, you know, NAPI to me is a really wonderful marketplace for TV projects and real screen and the AFM can, of course, Toronto, Berlin, um, maybe Venice. I mean, those to me are the, are the big players. And again, it depends on what you're, what you have to sell and where you live. You know, if you can hit any major marketplace near you, then go. And, and I don't know that it's worth it to travel to any of these marketplaces when you don't have a project that's actively being marketed unless let's say you're in soft prep, soft prep for something and you hope next year or the following year to have a need to be at one of these markets. 
and you have a friend who's, who's working the market for one of their films, it might be a really good opportunity for you to go in an, in an environment where it's less intimidating and there's less pressure where you can kind of get the lay of the land and sort of get your sea legs and figure out where you need to be. I mean, that's a, a big part of the book I'm writing is, you know, where to stay. Do you need a car when you're there? Like all these things that um, can be really overwhelming when you, you really want to be focused on selling your project or, or raising the money or whatever it is you're going for. But I have friends who live near marketplaces. I mean, of course, the AFM, and they go every year whether they've got anything or not because what other time throughout the year is there a four-day time period when 800 people from around the world that you might have worked with over the last 15 years are going to be in the same place? So even if you're just going to have cocktails or dinners or lunches or go to certain key parties, um, you know, it's your your time is better spent in terms of networking there than sitting in your office when all this act you know eight thousand people come to the AFM so and from all around the world you know we did a studio tour and I think we had a bus I think we had maybe twenty seven countries represented on that bus I mean that's when do you get that opportunity twenty seven people who are in your business who might be in a position to help you so I, I think it's worth your while. So I, I have actually what I would consider a fairly important question when it comes to because you mentioned this now a couple times and I I want to I want to delve a little deeper in, into this idea and, and the topic of pre-sales because in a lot of the conversations that we we've had on this show and with other people in the business certain projects lend themselves very well to uh, being able to monetize uh, a pre-sale but usually they're a higher budgeted project. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just say five million dollars plus, or or their higher concept. Yes, you know, yeah. low budget horror films. They're elements that they know they can market. It doesn't really matter on the budget. Well, fair enough, and, and that actually comes to the to the core of my question, which is if you're dealing with us with a lower budgeted project, because a lot of people are trying to produce, you know, million and under uh, projects, and mm-hmm. in that market, it's can be very difficult to get pre-sales. And in fact, for I'm not so sure about this year, because this year there actually seems to feel like things are coming back. But certainly in the last three to four years, the the notion of pre-sales on something that wasn't a cash-driven, uh, quote-unquote, higher-budgeted project was yeah. a difficult one. It, you know, so the, you know, the, 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 the idea that you would be working with, say, a sales agent to get pre-sales was... Uh, a little bit of a, of an outside the box kind of thing for uh, again I'm I'm saying lower budgeted but I'm understanding where where you're where you're coming from but I want to get your your take on the relevance of pre sales inside of, uh, uh, of of being able to put together a project and whether you not and whether or not you feel that you can go to the market talk to distributors and actually get them to and actually get pre-sales to be part of your project? And if so, what do you need to do to make that a reality? Well, I'm probably a, a perfect case study for this. I have a, a project right now that's a $9.5 million high-concept action film. And then I have a lot of 2625 or 625. And I, 
I, I've done actually a, a matrix of all the different union, low budget, ultra low budget, modified low budget, and, and, and they don't jive at all. If you've ever tried to get the, you know, WGA, DGA, Yahtzee, all of those things to jive, they have different break points. So for me, that 262500 is a SAG ultra-low budget. 625 is your SAG modified low budget. And then to me, there's kind of this no-man's land where what happens is, to me, over, let's say over $1.2 million to about $2.5 is, to me, this dead zone, kind of this doldrums, because you end up spending so much money and not not able to hit this tipping point to get over. So I I then jump to about two and a half to three million. I, I won't do stuff in that middle range because the amount that you have to spend to get to where you need to get is that's where most people lose their shirt. So I try to stay out of that territory. So so then to the, to your second part of the question, if you have cast. Uh, you could be in good shape, but again, you can pick someone you thought was great that has no value internationally. So you can shoot yourself in the foot because now you have a placeholder locked up that's tying up a spot that could have gone to someone who would have had marquee value. So some of the other elements are what they can market. You know, if big budget normally implies, you know, stunts and action and adventure and maybe special effects, but there's a lot of sci-fi especially um, special effects being done at a much lower budget as the threshold and barriers of entries have dropped. So I think you have to have elements in place so that you can sell it visually so that people, you know, obviously a great title, a great log line is terrific, a great tagline. Maybe you have a poster or one sheet or some kind of image or some sort of a lookbook or pitch package. I, I prepare a lot of those. We have a, a lot of projects where um, that's what we're selling off of is that pitch package or the proposal. And instead of doing a full-blown blown business plan or even in the television world, instead of doing the pilot and the sample episode and, you know, the whole series Bible, we're doing these lookbooks and pitch uh, packages. And um, I think they're they're much better received because if you can consolidate your ideas into what I call a reduction sauce. Like if you do any cooking, it's this reduction sauce that you spend all this time boiling it down to its essence so that you can give the highlight and truly, you know, sell the sizzle, not the steak. So if an, any kind of a buyer can get the sense of what it is you're marketing and then they know whether they can turn around and sell that. And so I would say the last thing is with comedies, which I do a lot of comedies, and the challenge there is they're very execution-driven. And so no one wants to take the risk until they can see what's in the can. And so, you know, the difference between A Little Miss Sunshine or Awaking the Divine or Fargo, while they're all quirky, eccentric characters, you know, Fargo has some really extreme, gruesome violence in it, and that's going to be quite a different audience than Little Miss Sunshine, even though parts of them might overlap. And that's a very hard thing to suss out because, you know, what's romantic in Italy is not necessarily what's romantic in Canada and what's funny in Mexico is not necessarily what's funny in the Middle East. So you really have to find, you know, like you look at like the big fat, my big fat Greek wedding, that was universal because we all have a family that has um, cultural idiosyncrasies that we might be embarrassed by. And um, I think that's one of the reasons romantic comedy travels best, better than the other comedies is because, you know, romance is international. So 
whether it's gross out comedy, raunch comedy, those kinds of things are harder to create, or not hard, but they're very identifiable niches. And romantic comedy is, um, you know, has the opportunity to get wings. Hello? I'm here. Oh, okay, sorry. I thought I lost it there for a minute. Uh, no, I totally get you. And in fact, I like the way that you uh, subdivide the whole notion of, uh, of comedy specifically because that can be uh, a very difficult genre. So the idea is that romantic comedies can travel better than all the other kinds of comedies, a really interesting takeaway, uh, certainly on, on that point. Um, l- let me shift gears here a bit because we were talking before the show and also you had mentioned during the show uh, that you have a project that's coming out uh, and it's going to be distributed via Walmart uh, shortly. And that got me thinking uh, just along the lines of, okay, now you're dealing with the big boys. There's going to be likely a fairly prolific distribution plan and marketing plan. Um, and just, I, I'd love to get your uh, big picture, kind of 360 degree view of what it's been like prepping a project for distribution that's going to have uh, that kind of footprint. Well, I mean, I've been kind of privy to the process, but I'm not the one doing the work. The distributor does that. So we have Tricoast uh, Worldwide who's doing our distribution, and Crystal Sky, I think, is handling most of the Walmart and Best Buy and all of those, you know, um, brick-and-mortar retail outlets. So it'll, it'll be actually a really fascinating process for me because we hit August 19th is when we drop in Walmart and you can do pre-buys, pre-orders on Best Buy now. And my distributor has said, we have about a 60-day window. And if we can get over our production budget, which of course everybody hopes you clear that and get into the green or black, um, then that's great. So we, we all assume and hope that we'll sell enough units to clear, make everybody whole and make a little bit of a profit. That'd be great. But he says, for us to get, like, the difference between 850000 and $1.2 million, you know, we have to um, have enough of a social media push and have enough people driving those sales to kind of get to this tipping point. And he says, if, if we can get over that $1.2 to $1.5, we ought to hit $3 million. And if we hit $3 million, everybody's thrilled. So it's interesting because there are these, these no man's lands or these, these areas that you really need to push to get enough word of mouth and to get enough momentum. So, you know, it's, it's the difference of seriously one digit, you know, just getting over some of these humps. So, um, I'll, I'll know a lot more in October, you know? So right now I'm, I'm doing everything I know how to do. I have, my Twitter and Facebook have the poster on my banner headline. Every one of my signatures that goes out on email has the you can click to get the Best Buy order right there. I put Wal- you know available in Walmart. So like literally every single thing that leaves my social media mouth is subtly plugging go buy this film because you don't want to be annoying, but it, it's this omnipresent um, thing that as soon as we're done with that and I'm moving on to the next one, I'll do. But my dad used to tell me, you know, years ago, I was a mortgage banker, and any time you paid a bill, he said, you're paying for that stamp, put your business card in there. So my whole life, that's been like this 
you know, throw your business card in there. Even if you're, because you have no idea who's aunt, who's opening that bill wherever they are, they may need a mortgage. So same thing here with films. Like everybody, I may be emailing family or friends that I haven't talked to who don't even know I have a film coming out, and then they'll Facebook it and they'll tweet it. And so I think you have to look at every opportunity you have to expand your reach and um, and not be annoying. It's it's interesting though because you know you, you straddled over into the, the the social networking world in the in the same breath that we're talking about Walmart. So when I think of Walmart, I think of I don't know how many stores, uh, hundreds of stores across the United States, each of which is going to order a certain amount of units, and then if those sell, you know maybe they'll order more units, and obviously that's. The hope, or you have to buy them back if they don't. Right, right, because they're they're taking them on consignment, right? Uh, so, the, where where it gets interesting for me is you're talking about social media as a way to push and influence um, a, a distribution paradigm that all you know that like like I guess what I'm getting at is it's such a massive like. We're not talking about a small pond here. We're talking about you know Walmart is the ocean, right? And so, how much influence do you feel that you can actually have on that ocean, or does it have more to do with your DVD is on a shelf, it's taking up a certain amount of space? Someone's going to come in and see the DVD and make an instantaneous purchase to decide whether or not they're going to buy. Versus what you're kind of suggesting is okay, my social media presence is going to get people to go to I don't know Walmart online or you know, into the store to to buy the DVD or drive enough awareness. I mean, do you, do you actually, I mean, do you feel that there's a big enough crossover there where one can really influence the other? Well, uh, yeah, I think, I think when you're, you know, trying to get that train up a hill, everybody needs to get out and push and every little bit helps. And I mean, seriously, if it's the difference between 1.2 and 1.5 and we can hit that tipping point and get that snowball moving down that hill. I mean, I'm, I'm driving as much as I can. And I mean, I have a database of probably 15,000 and I have a pretty decent social media footprint. And so if I have friends and friends of friends and Twitter followers and Facebook fans who, you know, like if you walk into a Walmart and you're looking for a printer, I don't even know that you're going to wander over to where the DVDs are. If you happen to wander down the DVD aisle Unless you're a Meatloaf fan or Ed Asner fan, I don't know that you're necessarily going to be grabbing my DVD because you might not have ever heard of it. But if I have friends and family across the United States that do shop at Walmart that can go in and buy that DVD, specifically go in and buy that DVD or promote it, you start to have that poster being recognizable, that the title being recognizable. So I do think it's going to make a difference. You know, Walmart decides where, how many they buy for each store and where they go. So, like, if you had a Marlin fishing comedy, I have a romantic comedy that's set at a Marlin fishing tournament, you know, maybe they would buy a lot for Florida and not a lot for Montana, like, wherever they think that market is going to be, but they get to make those decisions. So, hopefully, like, here's an example. My brother used to do um, spice sales and soy coffee sales and a bunch of other things. And he would um, catalyze his target audience to go in and ask for, you know, I, I want um, old world spices and they don't have it. I want old world spices. You go in and ask and get those managers to know that you want that. So if, let's say Walmart has 
I don't know if they're going to have one or five of my DVDs. But if they turn around and the five are gone, because I've got people in their city to go in and buy those five, they're going to order more. So I, I don't know that sitting there, I don't know that just sitting there, they're going to get sold. Right. Yeah, and, and, and truthfully, Walmart didn't care about my DVD. And truthfully, probably my distributor has so many other films, you know, it's not their baby. So those things are going to sell or not sell. They're going to get them where they need to be. But I think as a filmmaker, it's really incumbent upon us to create that momentum and that buzz and that heat. And, you know, if I was a rich studio with deep pockets or had huge stars, all that would be great. But, you know, you got to do as much as you can until you've created that momentum. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the conversations that people seem to be having right now, especially around social media, and we're hearing this a lot, certainly on this show, and uh, it's, you know, it's the idea that more of the onus is moving to the filmmaker to to get things done, to, to build that audience. But at the same time, I don't want to say I'm cynical about it, but I mean, it's it's really easy for, for, for people to say, yeah, you know, I, I have to go out. I've got to build my audience. It's you know, it's going to be a you know a multi-year you know slog, really, because it takes it takes you know it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of determination. It doesn't happen fast. Uh, you know, it's um, drip, 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 drip. One new follower or one new you know connection every day, uh, and it, you know, and and so it goes. But that's a very hard process for for filmmakers. But it seems to be the way of the world right now. Um, and I, I guess, you know, part of the thinking that, I'm, that, that I've been having lately is, you know, well, if everything's going to be reliant on the filmmaker to do, uh, you know, what, what's, you know, where's the, it, it's almost like the distributor is passing the buck to a certain extent. And so I guess my question for you is, in this world of changing times where that, that buck seems to be passing over to the filmmaker, and even, even to the extent where, you know, what, what is it that distributors want? Distributors want to buy your audience. They want your audience. So they will want somebody who's got, you know, granted, the bigger audience you have, the more distributor is going to want you because they're going to want to, quote unquote, own your audience, take over it to a certain extent. Um, so I, I guess my question to you is, uh, in, in this world, can, you know, is, 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 should it really necessarily be the filmmaker's onus to now push their own film, you know, beyond the point of, of their, you know, the producer's job is to make and, you know, and deliver a film to a distributor, let's just say. Whereas now, that's not really the point anymore. Now it's the filmmaker's job is to not only finance and produce the film, but it's also distribute their own, their own work. Are we putting too much onus right now in the filmmaker? Well, we're not doing it. The marketplace is doing it. I mean, you're preaching to the choir. Do you think that's how I want to spend my time? Well, no, but that's... I mean, that's not why I got into this business, was to schlep silver discs, you know? But that's that's the core of it, is... is, uh, I mean, this is really tough... Who's we making that happen? I, I think you. I think your point there is actually really, really important. I mean, what, what you just said there is is to a certain extent. I think the core of the issue, which is um, the, the we is the is 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 the audience. It's the like the the world is making that happen. They're putting it on the filmmakers. So I find it really well. And here's and here's the yeah. thing: just yeah. as there in any industry in any time period, as there become these vortexes or um, I can't think of a polite cluster. You know what? 
in an industry where, whether it's litigate, um, whether it's legislation, whether it's finance, um, you know, the, the capital is not available. I mean, it's like saying, well, why should um, creatives have to go find the money? Well, when has that changed? You know, we have to find the money. Uh, the entertainment industry used to be one of the very few industries that did its manufacture before it did its R&D. They didn't actually know where they were going to sell their film to or their television show to until it was in the can and ready to go. And then they figured it out and they handed it off to a marketing department. So it's always already been asked backwards. You know, most other industries do their patents and their testing and all of that in advance and even do, um, you know, one-offs where they kind of float trial balloons to see if this simple, easiest, quickest way to get to the market will, will catch wind. So I think while the onus is on our shoulders squarely for raising money and doing promotion and publicity and marketing and advertising, I mean, if all of us won the lottery, we could just buy ads, but we don't have that luxury. But I think what's interesting is I believe and hope that all of my hard work now will pan off, you know, pay off such that my 15,000 database might be 150,000 soon. And that 150,000 will be fans of my work. And so maybe I'm schlepping it now with Walmart and Best Buy, but how wonderful would it be if I could get to the point five years from now, five films from now, where I could actually raise money, if, depending what the SEC does, raise money right off my own website. Why do I have to pay a commission to Kickstarter or Indiegogo? Why can't I, these are my friends and my followers, why can't I advance sell a $20 DVD to raise the money to make the projects I want to make and actually sell them all off my own website? So I think while the onus is upon us and if distributors are being lazy and looking the other way, they're going to lose, and we are the creators. We are the creators. So the product is coming from the, I mean, I consider myself a film maker. I make these films. I write them. I direct them. I produce them. I pull all the pieces together. And if I have to sell them too, why do I need to pay 30% or 50% or have commissions left and right to all these people when I have a platform and I need to create that platform? So I welcome the opportunity of expanding my sphere of influence from friends of friends of friends because maybe they'll become fans of my work and I'll be in a position to make movies I actually want to make in the way I want to make them without constantly taking all the risk and all the burden. And I mean, I have a project I've been working on for 13 years and every step of the way it's me doing all the work speculatively and every step of the way everybody's trying to get rid of me as the director because, you know, female directors directed 4.7 last year. So the fact that I co-wrote it, the fact that I've been working on it for 13 years is completely irrelevant. The fact that I pulled together this brilliant package, everybody just wants to shit can the, the quarterback. Why would you do that? And then they let it sit on their shelves. Well, maybe I'll hang on to the ball and run it into the end zone. Yeah, I mean, I, I think everything you're saying is, is, is extremely salient. I mean, th- these are the times that we're, we're living on. And I certainly don't mean to, to push it, you know, to the nth degree. But this is the conversation I think people are having right now. And certainly, you know, only time will tell. Um, but, you know, those people that can create their audiences, like you say, power to them. And, you know, uh, and, and that's, uh, uh, I mean, that, that just may be the way, the way things roll. Um, I mean, would I rather would I rather have a studio deal where they pay for everything and I get to make anything I want? Sure, you know, and have CAA running to get me my stars. Sure, I just don't live in that fantasy world. 
you know? Well, most people don't. Uh, and, yeah. But, but, the, but the reality is that most people right now are the filmmakers right now who are coming into the business because, because they can and creativity and great ideas and, you know, and, and talent rises to the top. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it is, it's all well, really fascinating stuff. I, I really appreciate all the insights that you've brought to this show. Sure. Let, let people know where they can best connect with you um, if they wanted to, to, to follow you or, or get in touch. Yeah, well, I'm Heather at HeatherHale.com, and that's H-E-A-T-H-E-R-H-A-L-E.com, especially looking for film investors. <laughs> and um, Absolute Killers is at Walmarts and Best Buy on August 19th. That's fantastic. And uh, just for this, this will, on this episode, we'll, um, I mean, I, I know your book's coming out uh, in, in a little while from now, but certainly we will, depending on when whomever is listening to this is listening to this podcast, which may be in a year from now because these things live on, yeah. uh, we will certainly update the show notes. And this will be episode number 38. So if you go to crafttruck.com uh, slash BOF38, uh, uh, we'll update the show notes uh, when uh, Heather's book comes out. Do you, do you have a title for your book, by the way? Um, I think it's going to be called Power Networking, the Film and TV Markets. And it's um, published by Focal Press as part of the AFM series present. And um, I'd love, happily do another interview at that time because I, I am learning a lot about, you know, lots that I didn't know. I'm calling all my friends and people I've worked with and people I'd love to work with and asking them all the questions I really want to know. So that interview process has been really fascinating. So I think I'll have a lot and a lot more on how to, power network from afar you know what if you don't go to the markets how can you make the most of all those people gathering away from you so i think there's some really amazing things and as the world gets smaller and smaller and we're more electronically connected that those face-to-face meetings matter and those live events matter i think increasingly awesome well we'll have to get you back on the show thanks again for taking the time today i really appreciate it oh, thanks for having me